I think there are a lot of things that we can chase after today as pastors that honestly in one million years we'll say no one cares. <laughs> I was thinking about this last night, talking with Harold and, and Wade, but I'm going to be a little bit imaginative here for a moment. The saints around the throne in, in a million years, they maybe will have a song called No One Cares. And we could sing it to the tune of Jesus Saves. And maybe the first verse would be something like this. What about the SBC? And we just say, no one cares. No one cares. What about the BMA and the ABA? And what about the PCA and T4G and TGC and all these things we've mentioned uh, this weekend at the conference? Well, frankly, we could say no one cares. No one cares. And in case, in case I haven't hit somebody, let me just add POG to the list. No one cares. Do I mean that none of these ministries and organizations have value? Of course not. I'm, I'm a Baptist pastor. I'm being hyperbolic. We're always hyperbolic about everything. But listen. There's only one organization, entity, institution that is here today that will still exist in one million years. It is the church. It is the church. Listen, I'm just trying to make the case this morning for pastors in this room. And if you know me well at all, some of you may know me from a distance and and, 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 and maybe you think one image about me, but, but if you know me at all, then you know I need to hear this message too, that we need to pour our lives into the local church. I, the disappointing news I have for you this morning is I'm really just going to preach uh, Brandon and Joseph's sermon again. But I want you to turn in your Bible to Romans 1, and I want to talk about the power of the church. You, you understand, brothers and Ladies in here as well, you, you have an appointment with a casket one day. And when they lay our body in the grave, may no one in heaven on earth be able to say about us, no one cares. May they say, brother pastor, that he lived his life in service to the church. And I want to talk about this morning how to do that specifically from Romans 1.16. I just invite you, this is what I do, just stand if you don't mind, and we kind of go up and down. And We didn't get to stand to sing, so. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Father, I, I need you this morning. And God, we need you. Would you work through the heralding of your word to, to make a change. God, we want to live lives that matter.
let us stop caring so much about what the world thinks and about even what, what, what others maybe in the church think. Let us care most about what Christ thinks. We pray your blessing upon the preaching of his word today. We pray it all in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Romans 1.16, as you know, I'm not bringing anything really fresh to you this morning. It's just an encouragement. It's a challenge. It's an exhortation. But you know that this verse is central to the book of Romans. You know that it is central to the teaching of the New Testament. You know that this verse is, is central to the entirety of the Bible. Here we find the theme of Romans, the, the focal point of the Bible and the fundamental foundation of Christianity. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, Paul doesn't define the word gospel. Praise God. Uh, I, I, I lost count. How many, how many preachers have we had? We've had several preachers already uh, in this conference define the gospel very well for us. But Paul doesn't define the, the gospel here, but we know from the entirety of his writings what he means. But let's just review, right? The gospel is the good news of the work of Christ. It is his being truly God and truly man, his being born of the Virgin Mary, his righteous life of obedience before the Father, his fulfillment of the law and prophets, his completion of the covenant of works, his willingness to suffer, his crucifixion upon Calvary, his atoning sacrifice, his sin-bearing upon the cross, his dying as a perfect substitute, his dead body laid in a tomb, his resurrection on the third day, his proclamation of victory for 40 days on the earth, his ascension into heaven. His being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. His being our perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king. His ruling and reigning this universe now. His coming again to judge the living and the dead. Brethren, this is all God's work. And Paul says it is the power of God for salvation. For salvation for everyone who believes. That means... That the gospel is not a pathway to money or fame or, or healing in this life. The, the gospel is not a means for you to achieve your greatest potential in the eyes of the world. The gospel is rather what saves you from the justice of God. The gospel is the means by which God graciously forgives sinners. It is what God does to save us from His wrath. By counting all of our sins paid for in Christ and then crediting, crediting us with the righteousness of Christ. All by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is the power of God. This is the power of God. Not, not merely that he initiated salvation in Christ. That's great power. And, and not only that he raised Christ from the dead. That's great power. But it is also the power of God for salvation in the sense that it is through the proclamation of His gospel that He brings His power home into the hearts of sinners, giving them new life. Through this gospel, God regenerates sinners. He justifies sinners. He sanctifies sinners. He builds His church. He furthers His kingdom. Yes, Christ rules and reigns over all. But, but the kingdom of Christ is, is, uh, consists of those who recognize and rejoice in His reign. 
And the gospel is the power of God to bring hopeless rebels into this grace. Okay, so the power, all of this is true. So the power of the local church then is the power of God in the gospel. The power for your local church, brothers, is the power of God in the gospel. Now Paul says, for I am not ashamed. might be strange to our ears if all that i said if all that uh just thinking about these last couple messages if all that brandon said all that joseph said if all that that i've said so far and all that these brothers and the brothers before if, if all that we've said is true and of course it is well why would anyone be ashamed of the gospel and by the way this is not the only time that paul says that you think if, you, if Romans 1.16 was like the only verse that said something about it, you're like, huh, I wonder what's going on there. It's not the only time Paul says it. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says to Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Strange. Now, Paul's not the only one that says it. Jesus says it. Mark 8.38. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels okay if if this glorious news that god saves sinners through the life death burial and resurrection of christ is true why would anybody be ashamed of it why would your church be ashamed well summary Answer could be found in 1 Corinthians 1.23. Paul says this, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. Okay, here's what we have to embrace. In saving sinners by the cross of Christ alone, God tells the world that the ways of your Humanity, the works of your hands, the wisdom of your head, and the will of your heart will not get you into heaven. The only way for you to be right with God is for God to work. And God declares to the world their wretchedness in crucifying. It's not just the love of God displayed on the cross. It's it's a message to the world saying, you are wretched and vile and sinful. He displays the wretchedness of humanity in crucifying Christ on Calvary. And he declares to the world their hopelessness of remedying that situation in their own will or power. In crucifying Christ on Calvary and raising him again on the third day. So the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews because it confronts them with the lawlessness of their outward deeds. And it tells them they must be born again. And it's folly to the Gentiles because it turns the wisdom of the world on its head. Quit trying to be liked by the world. Quit it. Because as soon as you think you make inroads, something like Roe v. Wade happens and you realize what the world really thinks about you. They don't differentiate between the woke Christians and the non-woke Christians. They don't differentiate between the ones that are playing movies on Sunday morning and the ones that are preaching the gospel. They lump them all together and they say, we hate you. In 1857, 
they were doing some archaeological digs around Rome. And they found on the wall some ancient graffiti from maybe around 200 A.D. And the, the, uh, the graffiti is the picture of a man on the cross. It's supposed to be Jesus. And he's got a donkey's head. And there's a man in front of the cross with his left hand raised. And written below this picture, it says, Alexa Menes worships his God. In other words, it's ancient graffiti of mocking Christians. The world looks for salvation in man's power. The world looks for salvation in independence or in rules or laws or government. The world laughs at people who would worship a man who was nailed to a cross of wood. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because there is temptation to nuance it into inoffensiveness and to rob it of the power of its grace. It's always been there. This isn't new. This isn't a 21st century American situation that we're in. This was a temptation 2,000 years ago. To, to take the sharp edge of the gospel off and to offer something that has no saving power. This is happening today. I just mentioned a couple of examples of friends that I have. One, Gabriel Hughes. He's banned from Twitter now. And then I, I won't spend too long here, but um, he put something on, the, on Twitter uh, that the Twitter gods didn't like, but basically said something along the lines of, do you know what? homosexuals and murderers and abortion, uh, those who have abortion and, you know, he, he went to the idolaters, he went on this list. You, you know what they all deserve? He said, the death penalty. <laughs> he said, repent and look to Christ. Now, his point wasn't he put, he put uh, scriptures underneath it and all, but his point was not that we should go out and execute people. His point was because we're sinners, we deserve the wrath and judgment of God. And that we need to look to Christ. But he got kicked off Twitter. What's amazing is not that he got kicked off Twitter. <laughs> What's amazing is some so-called Christians coming alongside and saying, you're just not being nuanced enough. You're, not, you're just not being winsome enough. What you're saying is it's just too offensive. Friends, the gospel is offensive. Another friend I have, Tom Askell, comes under a lot of heat. Tom is a very faithful brother. I'm not saying you have to agree with everything of everybody, but Tom's a faithful brother who's been declaring to the world and to the Southern Baptist Convention the last couple of years specifically of the kingship of Christ and asking us time and time and time again, by what standard? By what standard? We have a book and pointing us to the Scriptures. We have Christians today that want to ridicule him as though his message now is political, which it's not, but... By the way, the Christian message is political, right? Christ is king. <laughs> nuance, nuance, nuance. Winsome, winsome, winsome until the gospel has no bite and it has no grace. But July 8th, yesterday, July 8th, 1741, but whatever, 281 years ago, Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. It wasn't his first time to preach it. Of course, it was heavy on the law. We understand that. But he was pointing out the wretchedness of the human condition, condition and, and the miserableness. And, and God used that message mightily, as we know in our country, to, to spark about the first great awakening. 
And if Jonathan Edwards were in pulpits today and preaching that message, I'm afraid that many in evangelicalism would have said, stop, stop, stop. Nobody wants to hear that. You're not going to win friends and influence people. So Paul says he's not ashamed. Because, friends, there is real temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. And many in Paul's day, and many in the history of Christianity, and many in our day, have shown themselves ashamed of the gospel. You're ashamed of the gospel and how confrontational it is. Yes, it's a message of mercy and hope and grace. But you understand that you don't get to the mercy and hope and grace unless you address people exactly where they are. Children of wrath, lost Wicked, rebellious, vile, and sinful, not in need of a little boost from below, but a birth from above. Or you're ashamed of how foolish it is to give up all the pleasures of this world to follow a crucified and resurrected Galilean. It's why many people in the Methodist church today are not pastoring. Well, there's women, (laughs) but the men are golfing, right? This is too foolish to endure the laughter of the world. Or some, you're ashamed of the king's book and you're afraid to tell the world all that it says, claiming that it whispers about their sins or, or, you, or finds no offense in them at all. You're, you're conservative on paper, but not in practice. You, you fear man and not God. Of course, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel in our text because it is the power of God for salvation. This is it. This is the power of the church. I'm telling us today, friends, that if you try to blunt the message of the gospel, your church is ripped of all power. You've got nothing. And I've got nothing. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. But I'm trying to tell us this morning that there is a way. The local church. Now what we'll do for the remainder of this message I want to just give you four ways that we have to respond to the gospel. Primarily, this is for pastors, but, but there's application for everyone. And this ties squarely into giving your life to the ministry of the local church. Let me say it this way. The ministry of the local church is the ministry of the gospel. And true gospel ministry is local church ministry. Four ways that you respond to the gospel. Number one. Obvious. And I'm not going to give you, whoa, that's insightful. No, but you need to hear it. Number one, believe it. Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, not to everyone who understands it. Not to everyone who can pass a seminary exam. Not to everyone who can get into a social media debate. Not everyone who can sit around coffee and just talk about the the fine different nuances, if you will, of the gospel. It is only the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Believe, those who have faith, the Jews first because the Jews received the gospel first. And and by the way, not just when Christ came in the flesh. The people of God saved in the Old Testament, how were they saved? They were saved by the gospel. They looked forward to the coming Messiah. Of course, we know the vast majority of Israel rejected the gospel, and we see that definitively in the ministry of Christ. But God is still saving Jews today. Someone asked me one time at at one of these rallies that I was at, I was like, well, what do you think about Jews? 
Like, well, if they repent and believe the gospel, they're going to heaven. Right? That's it. They repent of their sins and embrace Christ alone by faith. God is saving them. And God is saving Gentiles too. Those who repent of their sins and embrace Christ alone by faith. This is a gospel message to everyone who believes. We take the gospel to everyone. We take them to the, to the streets. We take them to the, to the most vilest people, the most offensive people. The people are yelling at us and screaming at us and, and, and giving the California wave in our face. And, and we take the gospel to them because God is saving them. And He will save them differentiate between sinners say man here it is friends we're ambassadors on behalf of christ but but faith everyone who believes faith is not merely understanding the facts of the gospel and it's not merely believing they are true it's letting go of every work and it's turning from our sins and it's trusting christ personally as our only way to god as the only means of the forgiveness of sins, as the only way to be counted righteous with a righteousness that is not our own, but Christ imputed to us by grace through faith. So what I say to you today, and what I'm saying to Alan Nelson today, is that pastors, this is your only way too. You must believe the gospel. It's weary work, isn't it? Sermon prep and preaching and Pastoral trials, tribulations. We all got stories, don't we? We've all been probably fired or close to fired. Late nights, early mornings, time away from family, or cutting vacations early, missing out on conferences, funding all these things out of your own pocket. What I say to you, dear brother, is that none of this merits righteousness. None of this will bring you your salvation. You can't stand before God and say, yeah, but I, look at all I did. None of these things will reconcile you to God. None of these things will secure your eternity in heaven. No, friends, I'm saying to you this morning, you must take all that you are and all that you have and all that you do upon this bedrock foundation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cast yourselves this morning again, 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 Jesus says, come to me. Rest again, as uh, Ronnie said. Come to Christ and remember his tender mercies. Now, why do I say this to pastors? It's an odd group to talk to you about believing the gospel. Two reasons. The one is this. There is such a thing as unconverted pastors. I'm just going to lay it on the table. There are pastors who are not converted and who will bust hell wide open. There's many in the SBC. (laughs) But it's not just the SBC. My favorite story is Elias Keach, the son of Benjamin Keach, riding on the coattails of his father. He came over to America and in the year of our Lord, 1686, he was preaching, preaching the gospel in Philadelphia. Suddenly he becomes aware of his sin, <laughs> and he gets converted under his own sermon. Listen, are there any pastors here this morning trusting in their own work, thinking that God owes them? Or, or perhaps there's pastors here who are cultivating secret sin that no one else knows about. Harold can tell you stories about that. Deception. Pastors who have late at night (laughs) calling 
people they shouldn't be calling, doing things. Maybe you've had to, been like Harold and had to confront people like that. I say to you this morning, if that's you, though, repent and believe the gospel. Come to Christ. There's salvation, I'm saying, even for you. Yeah, you'll have to step down for a season, at least. But despite your hypocrisy, despite your abuse of your office, there is salvation if you will believe. If you will turn from your sins and embrace Christ by faith, this applies to you. It applies even to those who have lived a, a, a life of hypocrisy before the church. God is willing even to save you. He's willing to save you even today. If you'll cry out to Him in mercy, turn from your sins and believe the gospel. But secondly, the reason I say that you need to believe the gospel is because your church doesn't need your power. Your church doesn't need your power. It needs God's. And the power of your church is not in you. It is in the gospel. Oh, I'm saying, I'm not saying quit your labors. Labor. Probably some of us are lazier than we ought to be. So labor, labor for the glory of God. Yes, labor, 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 labor. And then understand that the power that your church needs is not your labors, but the gospel. The better that you believe the gospel, the more that you believe the gospel, the better off the souls your people will be. Because you begin to orient everything you do around the gospel. Every sermon, every visit, every labor, every prayer, all of it is centered around and flowing out and pointing to Christ. Because the gospel is the power of the church. And you're just there as a minister of the gospel. The gospel's the power. And you're just serving you're just serving the power of the gospel, a minister of it. You're not the one who makes the gospel work. God is. You are the one who brings the message of the gospel to your people week in and week out. And so I hold the gospel, I hold Christ out to you and I say, believe. Preach. Believe. Believe. Secondly, defend. You may ask yourself this morning, why has he not alliterated these points? And the reason is, I have a very good reason. Lord willing, next week, and I ask you brothers to pray for me, but Lord willing, I'll be preaching in Mexico uh, next week at a pastor's conference. And so, Lord willing, I'll be preaching this message. And I was preparing it, and I was beginning to think about alliteration. I was like, you know what? <laughs> it's going to be translated so probably alliteration won't even matter. So believe it. Secondly, defend it. I'm not ashamed, Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the power. I love little words in the Bible. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There are millions of false gospels in the world today. There is the false gospel of abortion. It says the child must die so I can live. My salvation is in my autonomy. There is the false gospel of the Roman Catholic Church. There is the no gospel of Islam, or as we've already heard, Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. Or the list goes on and on and on and on. So because the gospel is the power of the church, pastors need to draw a hard line here. A very hard line. I cannot partner with those who desecrate the gospel. 
I cannot hold hands with a Roman Catholic because we agree on the Trinity or because we're both pro-family. They're not pro-family anyway. Look at Joe Biden. It means I want to help guard my people from false gods. Even me. Are they trusting in me? Are they trusting in politics? Are they trusting in tradition? Are they trusting in this conglomeration, this mixture of Christianity and paganism that we see in the South today? Whatever it may be, I must rigorously and and intentionally defend the primacy and priority of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel in the church. Because the gospel is the power of God for the church. It means I care about church discipline. Right? Because church discipline, corrective church discipline, is dealing with an individual who is mocking the gospel with their life. So it means if I'm going to defend the gospel, I care about church discipline. I must make sure that all that we are doing from our worship to our outreach to our fellowship is centered around the gospel. (laughs) I must be willing to cut out anything that is detracting from the gospel or anything that is seeking to replace the gospel or anything that is seeking to add or take away from the gospel. Suppose for a moment there's a man who buys a car And every year he puts thousands of dollars in the stereo system. But he neglects the engine. One day he'll have a very loud car with no power. Friends, that's what a church is. That focuses on all the external things and neglects or distorts the gospel. A lot of noise. (laughs) No power. A less offensive gospel is not the power of God for salvation. The gospel that comes along with something attached to it is not the power of God for salvation. I must defend the gospel, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let me also offer this application under this heading. The opposite here. I must extend the right hand of Christian fellowship to those who preach the gospel that I'm preaching this morning and have surrendered their lives to it in repentance and faith. Yes, we have differences, and some very important differences, but we cannot draw lines in our fellowship that God hasn't drawn. And we must remember that it is not our differences that power our churches. It is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now certainly there are levels of church membership and cooperation and association that may happen because of our differences. I get that. But what I'm saying is that those of us who preach the gospel humbly surrendered to the book uh, uh, and, and to King Jesus are ultimately on the same team and in the same family. I'm sick and tired of the Aquinas Wars. What is going on? It's stupid. I'm not saying that there's not some important things, but we better quit no matter which side you fall on or even if you don't know that these exist, praise God and just keep on going and doing what you're doing. But I don't care which side you you fall on. If you're riding off brothers because they're on the other side, shame on you. We're united. You're only doing it because you got the gracious prosperity that the Lord's given our country. I promise you, I promise you if the Lord were to remove his hand, we we would be quit caring about some of these things that we think are so important. I got to move on. Thirdly, believe it, defend it, grow in it. Not ashamed of the the gospel. 
you understand that since the gospel is the power of God for salvation and the power of our church, then I must give my life to growing it. You've caught on by now that this is a little less expositional sermon and focusing a lot on application. But understand this morning that I serve my local church by growing in the gospel. First, I'm talking about growing in knowledge of the gospel. Seminary is not a requirement for being a pastor. If it were, it would be in the Bible. It's not required to be in seminary to be a pastor. But it is required to grow in gospel knowledge. It is required to show yourself approved. A workman that need not be ashamed. I must study the sound doctrine of the Bible. I must be a Bible man. I must read the Bible daily. I must study the glories of Christ, the wretchedness of sin, the beauty of the church, the work of the Holy Spirit, the sovereignty of the Father. The list goes on and on and on and on. I must grow in my knowledge of the gospel. Secondly, though, I must grow in my application of the gospel to my own soul and mind and heart entire life I must grow in applying the gospel to every day to wake up every day in grace to go to Christ daily drawing nourishment from communion with the triune God in Christ every day that you wake up and you just think I can't meet with God today I'm just not where I need to be and God is like I'm ready to meet with you right seek me and you'll find me I'm not far off draw near to me and I'll draw near to you Remember the gospel. If, if you're thinking to yourself that the only way that you can draw near to God is if you, if, you, if you preach a perfect sermon, then you're not preaching the gospel. Right? Draw near to God. I apply the gospel to my marriage. It doesn't only mean that I lead through Christ, but I repent. I repent to my wife, to my children. I show them that their dad is not their savior and their dad is not a perfect man. I apply the gospel to relationships in the church. Frankly, I know that you have some honorary church members. <laughs> but I also know this. You need to cultivate patience. Because God has been patient with you. I apply the gospel to prayer. I'm weak and needy, but Christ is mediating for me and the Spirit is groaning for me. I ought to be a humble man. Shame on us if we're preachers of grace and we're proud. I want to show the world and my local church that the gospel is not just these great truths of the scriptures. They're not just, by, and by the way, the gospel is intellectually stimulating. Isn't God, God is intellectually stimulating, right? This is amazing. God, like all the wonders that we could study. We went to the Grand Canyon this summer. Beautiful, amazing. All the things that we could study in the geology and, and, and biology and, and all these ologies out there. There's nothing like theology that stimulates the human brain. And we, we want to know all these things about God. But what I'm trying to say is, I don't want to just show the world that the gospel is just these great truths of the scripture. But that these truths come to bear. In our hearts, in our homes, in our jobs, in our worship, in our fellowship, and in our lives. Believe it, defend it, grow in it. Fourthly, I, I don't know what this is, but 
Everything got thrown off. Let me just say this. Is there anything else I'm missing that we ought to do with the gospel? Anything that you can think of. Believe it. Defend it. Grow in it. <laughs> Preach it. <laughs> Preach it. Declare it. Proclaim it. All that I said before is extremely important. It's foundational, though, to this point. And it's this point that I want to hammer some truth home. Why are we afraid of preaching the gospel? John Gill says that those ashamed of preaching the gospel are those, I think, does any of these land home? Those who hide and conceal it, who have abilities to preach it and do not, or who preach but not the gospel, or who preach the gospel only in part, who own in private what they will not preach in public and use ambiguous words to cover themselves, who blend the gospel with their own inventions, seek to please men and live upon popular applause, regard their own interest and not Christ, and can't bear the reproach of His gospel. I plead with you this morning to quit courting the world. The church must quit inviting the world into her bedroom because we have a glorious husband. There are so many ways that we can be ashamed of preaching the gospel and some of the ways we might not even realize. And I hope that you'll give me a moment to pick your brain and heart. You understand that we can preach the hope of heaven without the demand of repentance. We can avoid preaching about this or that sin because we know, we know the deacon's daughter is involved in it. And if we preach about it, then he'll come against us and we may lose the power in our church scale back on the sovereignty of God because someone might disagree with us. We can tolerate easy believism because we're just weary. We're just weary of fighting the battle over the biblical definition of Christian. We can preach with fire in the pulpit, boldness and courage. And we can act like a little servant girl on the streets when it comes to evangelism. But I'm pleading with us, brothers, to passionately, unambiguously, and courageously preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. Preach the whole gospel and nothing but the gospel. I don't mean to say that secondary issues aren't important. I'm a Baptist, right? I'm a Baptist with a capital B. I love secondary issues. But it means, I'll, I'll divide, you know, no, just a joke. But it means that I pre- all that I preach, though, flows out of and connects to the gospel. What I mean is, I don't just, I'm just not belligerent about baptism because it's in the Bible and because it's what everybody uh, in, in my tradition has always believed. No, no, no. I am, I am a stern proponent and preacher of believers' baptism because only believers' baptism by a more immersion adorns the gospel rightly. Only believers' baptism displays a proper sign and symbol of the work of Christ. Listen, I am all for complementarian roles of only men preaching and pastoring, but not just because I want to bring back the patriarchy. I mean, I do want to bring back the patriarchy. But listen, it's because the Word of God says that marriage adorn, marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Are you, are you going to start coming and saying that the church and Christ mutually submit to one another? Right? In the, in the sense that Jesus listens to the authority of the church? Or that then in marriage it doesn't matter uh, what the role of a man, they're just interchangeable? 
Remember, women can preach. It doesn't matter. No, no, I stand on these issues because these are biblical issues, but they're also rooted in the gospel. And we must remember that the power is, is uh, the, well, what I'm saying is our preaching must be saturated with the gospel. We've got nothing to preach without the gospel. And that we must remember that the power is not in the preaching, but it's in the gospel. The power of our church is not in our preaching. I right, listen, look, let's just be honest. I've heard some good preaching. But if our hope was in our preaching, we'd be miserable. Our hope is not in the power of our preaching. We preach and we preach powerfully and we preach passionately because our hope is in the power of God in the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The word of God is living and active and as we proclaim it, extolling the victory of Christ over death, over hell, over the devil, over governments, over all that we have, uh, we have supreme confidence that God is going to use it. There's going to be seasons sometimes in our churches that are like, we could call them the Whitfield seasons. Man, this person's getting saved, this person's getting saved, this person's getting saved, and we're baptizing and, and we're growing and, and, and we see the power of God on display. But there'll also be times that we might call the, the Adoniram Judson season, right? Where you're preaching and you're preaching preaching and you're preaching and your church is shrinking right and you go seven years before anyone gets saved but whether my preaching results in one or one million converts i rejoice because it's not my preaching it's the gospel i'm a farmer scattering seed it's the power of god and the gospel that saves sinners therefore i must preach it i must share it not just in the pulpit i must share it i must pass out tracks i must have the tough conversations Stand my ground. Hey, look, if I get lost in town, I want to be so evangelistic that they can just find me if they'll follow the tracks. Because I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, it's easy to amen. It's easy to amen. But out there, we think about what this person might think. Tomorrow you're going to stand in your pulpit and you're going to think about what if I say this and what will this person think? Or if we preach on the streets, someone might think we're a weirdo. If I pass out a tract, then maybe they won't even read it. Or, or they might not like me. Or if I confront this member of the church in their sin, they might cause trouble. Are we ashamed? Are we in this room like Peter? Right? I will never deny you, Lord. Yet when we leave this place where time and again fail to proclaim the gospel, I'm saying this is all we have. Imagine a, a, an owner of a restaurant who is ashamed of the menu. How much worse a preacher ashamed of the gospel? A fish ashamed of the water or a dog ashamed of his bark are better off than a preacher ashamed of the gospel. We must preach the gospel. Do you know the strategy of missions in the New Testament is to walk in the, in the, to a city and begin preaching the gospel? It's not to run a survey of what people want. It's not to canvas the area and find the right person to preach it to the gospel to. It's not to sit back and learn from the city. And, and certainly it's not letting the gospel bring the city to you or the, the city bring the gospel to you, right? Missions in the New Testament consist of this. The unashamed heralding of the good news of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus and calling people to repent. And boom, when that happens, God begins to start churches. And that's the mission strategy of our, our local church. That's the power of our church, the gospel. We preach the gospel to our cities, to our towns, to our communities and families and friends and neighbors. We don't, listen, 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 we don't just show up to an event and pass out water and say we showed the love of Christ today. We don't just host a barbecue and feed people and pat them on the back and say, well, we fed people in the name of Jesus today. 
We, we don't just try to be so nice and helpful and so loving to people that one day they'll come up to us and ask us about Christ. Friends, any of those things that we do and neglect the gospel, we're exposing our shame. We're exposing that we think we know a better strategy for reaching the world than God. We're saying the power of our ingenuity, the power of our kindness is more central and more of a priority than the proclamation of the gospel. Listen, what I'm saying, Pastor, is very simple, but it can profoundly transform our churches and our communities. I am saying preach the gospel. I'm not saying to try to winsomely convince people to try out Jesus. I'm not saying to to, to imbibe mere Christianity and cut away everything that might be offensive to a lost and dying world and, and saying, hey, just try out Jesus for a while. I'm not saying attempt to influence people by how nice you are. I'm not saying preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. No, I'm saying use words. They're necessary. Extol the excellencies of King Jesus, all that he is, his supremacy, his sovereignty, his sufficiency, all that he has done, all that he commands from the world. John Gill says to be unashamed of the gospel is to preach it fully and faithfully, plainly and consistently, openly and publicly and boldly in the face of all opposition. Friends, Christ loves the church. He loves the church. And this is true too. The church loves Christ. And the means of both of those is the gospel. And so preach the gospel unashamedly inside your church. Preach it boldly outside your church. And preach it all places in between. Preach it to your heart. Preach it to your children. Preach it to your family. Preach it to the lost man serving you coffee. Preach it to the godless men and women God has placed in your town. Preach, 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 and then keep preaching. Give your body, mind, and soul to this task in and through and with and by and under the local church. Right here, listen friends, right here. Right here is where we're placing our flag. Right here is where we're drawing the line. Right here is where we're planting our feet. We will be faithful in the foolishness of preaching. We will gladly be fools for Christ's sake. We will dig in here. We will not budge here. Let the culture throw at us what it may. Let them do their worst. Let them laugh at us and scorn us and get angry. Let them invent new lies. Let them exhibit more folly. Arrest us. Try us. Beat us. Kill us. But we ain't stopping. We have a message to proclaim in the name of our King. Let those who think they know better than God disdain us. Let the gospel compromisers shake their head and wag their fingers. Let the nations rage if they must. What do we do? (laughs) We'll preach. We'll preach Christ to sinners of all shapes and sizes, every color, every sin type. We'll preach the depravity of man, the desperation of sinners, and the darkness of the wrath to come. And then we'll preach the hope of Jesus, His mercy and His grace and His compassion for sinners. We'll preach His life and His death and His burial and resurrection. We will give our lives to the local church because nothing else matters. We will preach God's perfect wisdom in reconciling undeserving sinners to Himself through the blood of His own Son. We'll not soften the message. We'll not skirt the issue. We'll not tamper with the Word of God. We'll not attempt to make it more palatable. We'll not mix sugar in with the gospel. We'll preach the gospel and we'll rest in its power for our churches. We will give our lives to this. This is where we make our stand as America rushes headlong over the cliff 
over the abyss. We plant the flag of Jesus right here and we preach Christ and we see Him work in the local church for His glory. We ain't interested in pragmatism. We ain't interested in worldly ideas. We are not interested in adaptation. We are not interested in surrender or compromise or backing up. For 2,000 years, God has been saving through the power of the gospel. And his local church is marching on. And his local church will not be defeated. And so we carry on this message. We are not ashamed. We go boldly. In this truth together, brothers. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Believe it. Defend it. Grow in it. Preach it. Let the powers of darkness tremble, brothers. Christ is king. When our race is finished, not one glorified saint will ever be able to say about our ministry, no one cares.